Well, for one, I want to thank Chris Grant for being willing on relatively short notice to come down and preach for me uh, last Sunday as uh, I and the family had a chance to jump up to Vermont for a few days and enjoy the beauty and the glory of nature in the Green Mountains there. It was a wonderful time of, uh, I, I told Mark, it's like when I get up into Vermont, it's like, uh, it's a stress melter. It's just the, the mountains and the beauty of, uh, of God's work of creation. So it was a real joy, and I'm, I'm thankful to Chris for uh, being willing to come, come down here and preach. And also, I didn't get to be with you last Sunday to rejoice in that Supreme Court decision. Um, and I, I mention it not only in my prayer, but I say it here that it might also be on, on, uh, on record recorded, that we ought to rejoice greatly over this uh, Supreme Court reversal of Roe versus Wade and give God great thanks and praise. Uh, I, I, I'm particularly, well, of course, sensitive to the issue of abortion, but I think of the, the laborers who for many years and decades um, uh, dreamed of this, and yet it seemed like a, a, a real, a something that was is not really within uh, political grasp. Um, and I think of my mother-in-law, you know, who, who just, it didn't matter where it was happening, if there was some rally, if there was some uh, crisis pregnancy center raising money, uh, if there was a politician that needed a letter written to them on this issue, uh, my mother-in-law, who I, I take as, a, as a, uh, an instance of so many people who are nameless and faceless to the majority of us. They're not, they don't hold positions of power, but who have been faithful in prayer, faithful in giving, faithful in acting, uh, faithful in talking, um, that, that uh, God has, in, in this sense, given us a, a, an answer to those prayers uh, in this way. Now, of course, at the same time, I mentioned that, and I mentioned it in my prayer as well. It's, it's going to mean horrific things at the same time. It's going to mean wonderful things because uh, there will be places in which now um, the killing of unborn children is not legal, and that's, that's as it should be. I know there's all kinds of other complications. I know there are other questions that have to be answered, and they ought to be answered. And as Christians, we ought to care about those things. But at the same time, um, the killing of children in the womb is rarely the answer to whatever the problems are. And so there will be states in which that will not be legal. But there will be states like ours where the opposite effect will happen, where it will actually grow worse. In, in New York State, they're making the right to an abortion something within the New York State Constitution. I mean, so we're going to have, I don't, the ugliness in response to this and in fear of what they perceive could even come down the road, uh, culturally and politically speaking, is going to cause in many states uh, a, a revulsion that, uh, that's going to see abortion promoted to degrees we're not used to seeing. So there's a real cultural battle that is, is about to take place. And it's one that we as Christians ought to feel invigorated uh, toward and, and uh, be prepared to speak to. And so I, I want to say both those things. I want to rejoice together as a congregation um, over, over this answer to so many prayers. And then also steal ourselves uh, to, to speak and to continue. May we not take our foot off the pedal if we have been prayer warriors on this. And if not, then we ought to we ought to pray all the more now. So let that be said. Together, we're working our way, hardly, we've done one sermon but uh, on, on 1 Corinthians, but we've begun at least uh, before I stepped away for a week, um, 
a series looking into 1 Corinthians, a book that um, I've not preached through, a book that when especially Reformed people speak of Paul and loving Paul so much, it's rarely 1 Corinthians, the book they go to, um, not because they don't like 1 Corinthians, just because 1 Corinthians is, is, deals with so many oddball issues that typically, theologically, we're not wrestling with. But it's so important for us, and particularly in this time, because we can relate to Corinth. Corinth is, is a, a metropolitan place. It's a place of, uh, that we can identify with being near New York, uh, ideas coming in, going out. It's a melting pot, if you will, or a stew of all kinds of ideas and thoughts and ways of life, life philosophies, teachers coming in and out. Uh, it's a place of booming economy because it's a port city, actually like a dual port city, kind of ports on either side of it. Uh, so it was, it was a place that we can identify with, but it was also a place of terrible immorality, as you can imagine, a place we can identify with. And it's a place where the church was planted, and Paul planted this church there, and it's an exciting place. It's an exciting place to have the church. It's right in the, the dirt of the world. It's, it's there with the, the hustle and the bustle of life that Christianity is meant to be and meant to engage, meant to shine its light, even as we're talking about on this, on this challenging uh, uh, political subject for our country. It's a, this is where God wants his church. He wants his church in the fray if you will. And, and the Corinthian church was in the fray. Um, so it's something we can relate to. And so even though not every issue in this letter is going to be something that directly relates and we can find direct application, but what we're going to find throughout 1 Corinthians is a paradigm setter. It's going to set the trajectory for the church. Hey, here's how you deal with this issue. Okay, maybe we don't have anyone in here prepared to, prepared to marry their stepmother, you know, but that's not the issue we're dealing with here at Affirmation, and no one's getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, which we give God praise for. That's not the issue we're dealing with, but, but in seeing how Paul dealt with a church that was wrestling with issues with divorce, a church that was wrestling with issues uh, um, like lawsuits against one another, the, the divisions that we're going to see in this text working themselves out in very practical ways, we're going to find the way Paul wants the church to be in the world, if you will, but not of the world. So that's what we've been, we kind of introduced to ourselves uh, last week. Now, at the same time, I want to just remind you of something I said two weeks ago, and that was that even as, and the, the, the church of Corinth is a challenge to us, but it's also a tremendous encouragement because this flawed malformed, deformed church is still referred to by Paul as the church in verse 2, to the church of God at Corinth. He refers to them in that same verse as those called to be saints. It's a people that in verse 4, he thanks his God for. It's a church in verse 5 that he says is enriched in everything. It's a church in verse 8 that he says will be confirmed by Christ in the end, that they will be blameless on that day, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is so encouraging because you look at a church like Corinth and, and boy, you just scratch your head. I, if it was a church like this in our day, we'd be quick perhaps to call them apostate. And yet Paul at least begins his letter with, with very encouraging words. Now, he's going to have hard words for them. He's going to jump right into it in our text. But we ought to be encouraged by that. And I think it, it should also help create in us a spirit of charity, 
spirit of charity uh, and, and not a spirit of judgmentalism when looking at other churches, other brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean we don't have judgment. Paul's going to exert judgment here. Paul's going to be discerning. Paul's going to have hard words to say. And that we, don't, I don't, we don't want to pull that back. But at the same time, Paul can look at this flawed, deformed church, a church that in some ways is crumbling here. Paul's been away from them for two years. He's down in Ephesus now. And he's getting word from Chloe's household, as, well, as you heard in the text, that there's problems in the church. So he's, he's writing. And yet in all of that, in all of what he's heard, he can say all these things about them. Even in our text today, in verses 10 and verse 11, refers to them as brethren. As brethren. You're, you're my brothers and sisters, right? Again, just very encouraging words. So we want that. We want to hold these two things in a certain tension. The, 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 the words of judgment, the words of chastisement, the words of rebuke. At the same time, it's rebuke within the family. Until it's not, and you'll even hear in this very book, there is a time in which it's not that. Somebody has to be put out from the family. That's a reality as well. But we're not, Paul's not starting there. He starts with family. He starts with the church, enriched in everything, confident they will be confirmed in the end, blameless by the Lord Jesus Christ at that great day of judgment. What an encouraging word to begin with. Now, that brings us to our text, the second section here in uh, the second sermon in 1 Corinthians, verses 10 through 17. Because now Paul launches into the problem that he's getting word of. And this sets the tone for the rest of the book and where we're going. So I want us to think about three things. And, and because I was gone a week and had that fresh mountain air and come back like a better pastor, I'm going to use three Ps and use some alliteration because that's what pastors do. So I don't typically do it, but then again, I'm refreshed and I'm back. So we'll use some Ps here. So we're going to look at the problem Paul's problem with the Corinthians, then his posture, how does he approach them, and then his plea. All right, well, let's think, what is the problem here that, uh, that Paul is, is wrestling with that has come to him through this woman, Chloe, her, some, some of her people, whether it's business people, whether it's people within her family have made their way to Ephesus, and they've kind of given Paul a rundown on what's going on back in Corinth. And the problem is factions and divisiveness, division within the, the church. When Paul left, he, he stayed for a while in Corinth. He loved the Corinthian church. He loves the Corinthian church. But there was a unity there in the gospel. Now Paul's been away from, for some time, and the word he's getting is that the united body there at Corinth is dividing amongst itself, off into these little cliques or factions most likely with rivalry between them, one thinking they have the right thing or they're better than that group. And that's what's beginning to pop up within the church. The Greek word for this division is schismata. And we, we, we get our word schism or schism from this, that, that division among the church that rips a church apart. It's not just distinction within the body, but it's schism. It's rending tearing them apart. That's the word that's used here. So it's not just, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that you're grumbling amongst yourself or that you're having some issues between you. No, what I'm hearing is that there's schism among you, that the one group is breaking apart, you know, and they're breaking apart, apparently, 
around these teachers, which was a Greek thing to do. You know, even though Corinth is primarily like a really Roman outpost, but it's in Greece, and that's a Greek thing to do, to find your identity. You're, you are a disciple of Aristotle. You're a disciple of Plato. You're a disciple of Epicurus. You're, you, know, you find an identity around these things, and that's made its way, infiltrated its way into the church so that they're beginning to do this. You have a faction there that's saying, we are of Paul. Paul and his teaching, he's our guy and we are centered around him in distinction from you because you, you group over there, say we are of Apollos. Apollos was a Jewish teacher from the city of Alexandria, a learned man, a man who was very much able to teach the word of God, who did come to Corinth. Paul will reference him many times in this text. Paul loves Apollos. There's no, as far as we see, divisiveness between Apollos and Paul, but there's divisiveness within the church between those who say we are of Apollos. Apollos is our guy. The distinctness of his teaching are what we believe is the, our true identification. And these people are saying, yeah, well, Paul was here first. He's our guy. He's the one that should be shaping us. And we, we, we say things the way he said it, and his way is the right way to say it, in distinction from you. Not just difference, but, but a real division. Somehow Peter's name gets thrown into this. Peter, we don't have any record of him really having anything to do with Corinth. So it's either people who have traveled to Corinth who have learned and been taught under Peter, or perhaps because it is a Roman outpost and Roman uh, Peter is in Rome now, perhaps they, they get some of that. But whatever, there are those who are saying, yeah, well, we're of neither of you. We're, we're of Cephas. We're of Peter. And then you get this fourth group that Paul throws in there, which kind of makes us all scratch our heads, because he says, yeah, and there's even a group that says, we're of Christ. And Paul seems to clump them in there. On the one hand, you'd think he'd be saying, and they're the right ones. But, but Paul clumps them in here because even their identification as we are of the Christ faction is making Christ, if you will, the leader of one of the factions, that they've kind of lowered Christ into the fray of this, this mix of, yeah, well, we're of this. You have your guy, well, we have our guy. As if Christ is just a great teacher who is another one of the teachers and another one of the guys. Or perhaps they're saying, again, we, we are, we, you know, they, they have become an exclusive group as if we are the only true followers of Christ and you are not. Perhaps it's that. He doesn't really go into detail. He just said, whatever they're doing by mentioning Christ in this, they are naming Christ as their guy in such a way that it too is divisive. And we know that can happen. That can happen even among, you know, Mark mentioned the many denominations. You know, I don't particularly look at the denominational phenomenon within evangelicalism as, as an automatic problem. Like, it just should not be. That's not the case, unless it becomes this, unless it becomes, you know, we, we are the true Christ people, and you are not. Now, again, there are lines where that has to be the case, right? We, we have to say that with the Jehovah's Witnesses. We have to say, we are the true Christ people, and you are not. We are the true followers of Christ, and you are not. There, we, we have to say that with those who are we believe are outside of the Christian faith, the one holy Catholic apostolic church. But within there, you have to be very careful uh, not to do that. And when I look on the ground, for the most part, among Christian evangelicalism, there are some differences that are really important ones that really have to be fought out. 
and we should never stop wrestling them to the ground as best we can. But what I generally see uh, among evangelicals across boundary lines, and I know this because that's what I do, I work with with churches and evangelicals in Chapel Field where it's non-denominational, is, is a real genuine unity in Christ. It's a beautiful thing, actually. We have denominational differences. They're important. They are distinct. But at the same time, there is that kind of unity and that we have to we have to be careful that we don't turn our denominations into I am of you know, I am of Calvin. <laughs> you know, I am of you know whoever. I am of this little sect, and this is we are the true Christ people. We have to be careful. We may believe we see things clearer, we may believe we have things more accurate. We you know the Westminster Confession mentions more pure and less pure churches. We can use all of that kind of language in wrestling. We just have to be careful that we don't exclude those who don't agree with us on every jot and tittle within our confession, that we don't uh, uh, remove them from the, the, from the brethren, as Paul talks about in this uh, letter. So the problem that he's dealing with here is one of faction, one of schism, schism renting the church apart. And as such, they are thinking like their pagan neighbors. They are letting the thinking, the wisdom of the world, this is going to be a big theme. You heard it at the back end. We're going to jump into this next week. We're going to really dive into what does he mean by the wisdom of the world. But in this sense, he, they're allowing the thinking, the pattern of the world, this divisiveness, this clickishness, me and my guy and my people and no more, to infiltrate the church. You're allowing the wisdom of the world, if you will, the pattern of the world to affect you. So what's Paul's posture to this? The po- and the reason I'm using posture is because I want to pick up on the fact that in verse 10, Paul approaches this in a posture of pleading. It's kind of a strange thing. And when, when, when I see this in the Bible, like red flags go up. Red flags not of oh no, you know, something's wrong with the text. But like, oh, there's a real alert here. Something's really wrong. Like here, we are touching a nerve within the apostle. Because, I mean, think about that. He's an apostle. Why does he have to plead? Paul can just declare it. He's an apostle. He speaks with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the apostle says, I beg you, as Peter does in 1 Peter 2, as sojourners and aliens, I beg you to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. Think about that. Peter, the apostle, takes a posture of begging. You've hit a nerve. There's something here that is of so, so crucial that the apostle is willing to say, I, even as an apostle, am begging you. Not commanding you, though there's that too, I imagine, but I'm begging you. Paul does this same thing in Romans chapter 12, a very familiar passage. And in some sense, you can see a relation here with this passage. In Romans chapter 12, I urge you by the mercies of God to consider your body a living sacrifice and not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I urge you. I plead with you. I beg you not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. It is so infectious. Right? We, we, we live here in Babylon. 
And this is where God has placed us. And we ought not try to flee and reestablish Jerusalem and run back. This is He'll bring us to Jerusalem when he sees fit. But right now we live in Babylon and that's where he's called us to be and we need to minister there. And sometimes it's really hard. And sometimes it just you just can't believe the stuff that's going on around you. It's Babylon. You know, my, my, Tommy, Tommy's playing All-Stars for, uh, for Pine Bush. You know, little 9 and 10-year-old All-Stars. That's yeah, fun. So they went in a game and they said, hey, if we keep winning, we have a game every day this week. Okay, I'm not thinking twice about it. They said, except Monday because it's Independence Day. Again, still not thinking about it. So they went on Saturday and I happened to be sitting out by the field and they said, okay, next game is tomorrow at 9 a.m. That's today. I say, Sunday morning at 9 a.m.? The Little League system is scheduling a game 9 a.m.? Not, okay, Sunday afternoon. Okay, I'd wince, but it's okay, it's Sunday afternoon. Sunday, 9 a.m., no one flinches? No, no one. No one flinches. And so I just think to myself, so Tommy is, Tommy's with Christina at Westminster. I, I wrote him and said, hey, nobody loves baseball more than me, but we're not showing up for a 9 a.m. game. Not happening. And I just scratched my head and I said, Babylon. It's like it doesn't even, you know, there was a day, of course, when it wouldn't have been this way. It wouldn't even have been thinkable. Now, who would come? to a game at 9 a.m. on Sunday. No one. Now, not even an eyebrow raised. Not even an issue. There's two teams of kids, 30 kids. Out of 30 kids, only one has a possible issue with Sunday morning having a game. We live in Babylon. There's a lot of this, this, this friction and trouble that we're going to face. It's the reality. But this is where God has planted us. But beware. Paul urges begs us not to concede, not to give in, because it's very easy to be conformed to the pattern of this world. And I don't say that to say, oh, look at the Spaniards. We didn't conform. Trust me, there's a million other ways I'm conforming. And I constantly have to hear the urging and the pleading of the apostle and fight it back. And so also here, Paul comes with a posture of pleading. The issue of unity in the church is not some tangential issue. It's not icing on a cake. It's not something really nice if you can have it. Brothers, I plead with you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I plead with you. Paul, why the urgency? Why the pleading? We're human beings. We all, we all have angles and sharp edges to us. We rub each other the wrong way. But that's why I chose John 17 as our word of exhortation today. Because Paul has the mind of Christ. And I am always blown away every time I come to John 17 and think about the fact that Jesus is sweating drops of blood as he's praying this prayer in John 17. And while he's sweating drops of blood, the intense burden of the coming wrath and judgment of his father that he has to bear for the sake of the world as he's being literally crushed under that. He prays. And I always think that in a moment of utter crisis, when I'm talking to my students about this, I say, imagine all the things that are on your mind today, all the little trivial things that you're worried about, the little scuffle you're having with a friend in school and you're worried about this test coming up. If all of a sudden 
you got called down to the front office because your parents have been in a car accident and you need to rush to the hospital to see them. Like immediately, poof, your whole world changes. And so much stuff of your life, concerns that really were on your heart and mind just now, evaporate. And whatever your thing, if we can get inside your brain, on that ride to the hospital, as you're waiting to find out how mom and dad are, did they survive it? Are they okay? How bad is this going to be? All kinds of thoughts are going through your mind. Tells you what is really important to you in that moment. Like what's pressing on you. And I guarantee you, it's not that, you know, Instagram post that only got 27 likes when it could have got, you know, that is not what's going to be on your mind on your way to the hospital. So when Jesus prays here under this intense crushing weight, same thing. You get a glimpse, an amazing glimpse into the heart of Jesus. And what he prays for there rises to an amazing level, doesn't it? And what he prays for is unity in his church. I pray not just for these. I do pray that they be one, but I'm not just praying for them, Father. He says, I'm praying for all who will believe in me through their teaching. What? That they may be one. And then he doesn't just say that they all kind of get along. He intensifies it. I pray that they would be one, Father, even as you and I are one. I in you, you in me, that we might be in them, that they may be one. And then he adds this. Jesus adds this. He says, Father, may they be one even as you and I are one. And then he says, that the world may know that you sent me. Jesus ties mission to this to say their unity is going to be at least a means, if not the means, by which the world knows that you sent me. I mean, I don't think I can't, my words will fall very far short of being able to raise this to the level of intensification that Jesus gives to it. And Paul has the mind of Christ. So when Paul is in Ephesus and he hears that there are these schismatic factions and divisions within the church at Corinth, he is bothered by it to an extent that he writes this letter back and as an apostle takes that posture, like Peter in 1 Peter 2, of begging, pleading, urging. And for us as the people of God, when we hear the apostle behave this way, take this posture, red flags ought to go up, our antenna ought to go up, and we ought to do that reflecting work. Hey, are we hearing this? Are we taking this seriously? And again, as I said in my prayer of thanksgiving today, I do give God thanks for the unity that we have in this church. As, as the psalmist says in Psalm 133, what a beautiful thing it is, and it's beautiful indeed. That's within this little congregation. Okay, so how are we doing with the church at large? We can look outward as well, and we need to take Paul's mind and his posture seriously. So then finally, what's his plea? What is the plea that he makes them? And we read it. His plea is that we be one, that we be united but let's look at the language he uses. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he, now he, you're going to get three sames here. So he, this, again, an intensification of this unity. He doesn't just say, I just pray that you'd all be one. He says that other places, it's important, but here he, he kind of splits it out for us. 
that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So here's what perfect joining together looks like. You know, you're going to get this again in 1 Corinthians 12 when he jumps back into this with the image of a body. You know what being perfectly joined looks like? Like your body. Sure, all kinds of different parts. You know, we got all kinds of odd-looking parts. We've got parts that do weird things. we got parts in there we don't even know what they do. We're still trying to figure out what some of these parts do. Well, we got parts we don't see, parts that are operating behind the scenes, like I said about my mother-in-law, right? It's just that That's how a body works. It's just joined together and knit together in an amazing kind of unity that brings life. So he's going to use that image for us when we get to chapter 12. But here, he doesn't necessarily use the image of a body, but he says this perfect joining together means that you, you speak the same, the same speech, that you share the same thoughts and that you share the same mind or judgment. Now, what does Paul mean by this? Here, here's a chance for us to ask, well, then what does this kind of unity really look like? What does Paul mean that we all have to share the same speech, you know, speak the same things? What does that mean? Certainly, we know Paul is not speaking about you all have to share the same opinions and say the exact same things on every matter. Of course, right? If that were the case, if we all had to share the same opinions, you'd all be Dodger fans and it'd be a great thing. Gene, I'd love to see Gene in the Dodgers hat, but it will, I don't think it'll ever happen. Yeah, it won't happen. He's a big time Yankee fan and we just have to battle that out. It's part of the, part of the workings out of the life of the church. We don't all share the same opinions. That's not, that's not what he means. When he says you all have to have the same mind, we don't, don't have to think the same way about everything or have the same judgment. We all have to see things exactly the same way. That's not what he's getting at. That would be an oversimplistic understanding of what he's talking about because we know how this works itself out in the rest of the letter. What Paul is talking about is that we must all share a basic, common understanding about our identity because that's immediately what it jumps to. Because you say you're of Paul and you say, well, I'm of Peter. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Christ. We must all see things the same way, at least fundamentally, in terms of our identity. What are we? This is why our liturgy, week after week after week, we come in here and we just flatten it out. We're sinners. We, we, we have the call to worship. We sing a psalm uh, or a hymn of praise. We hear God's word together and corporately confess our sins. We, sure, we all have different gifts and abilities, right? One's an eye, one's an ear, one's of this, one's of that within the body. But when we come in here, the first thing we acknowledge is we're all sinners. We're all going to, in a second, come to the table. We're all, we're all going to come in communion, recognizing, as I said in my prayer, nothing in our hands to bring, only to the cross we all claim. Right? That, that's the nature. It's, it's level. And we all need to understand that. We all need to be of the same mind. It doesn't matter who somebody asks from affirmation about who they are. The first thing we should say is, we're sinners saved by grace. Not, well, I'm of this and I'm of that and I have that. I'm a sinner saved by grace. So the first thing that we have to have is that same speech, the same mind, the same understanding of our identity, that our identity is in Christ. We also, of course, have to share the same faith. 
And here, here again, we have to be careful because our creeds, as I've said, get bigger and bigger and bigger, and our churches get smaller and smaller and smaller. So we have to be careful here. And I have often pushed for, hey, we can find this kind of unity, this broad unity in the Nicene Creed. Now, of course, our, our confession of faith is the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a beautiful confession. It's a wonderful confession. I believe it's the best confession. But I also recognize that there are Christian brothers who don't agree. I think they're wrong. That's the nature of holding to truth, is that I think people who don't agree are wrong. And I understand the fact that they would say I'm wrong. I get that. And so, as brothers, we should want to wrestle that out. That's a good thing. So at Chapel Field, I promote theological debate. Like, let's wrestle it out. That's a good thing. And let's call each other wrong. That's also a good thing. I just watch kids cringe. It's amazing when I tell them that I've got a Baptist Bible teacher in, in you know, Chapel Field who I tolerate. And, and you know, and, and I, I, I often say when, when we're teaching, I say, now, you know, I think Mr. Stein is wrong about baptism. And they just get like, it's like they start convulsing. They're like, they just, they, they're not used to hearing anybody say somebody else is wrong. They just don't know what to do with it. But then I say, but he, he also thinks I'm wrong. And that doesn't mean we're both right. It means we need to wrestle it out. But he's my brother. But he's my brother. And so we will wrestle it out. And I love him. And I think he's wrong and I love him. And he thinks I'm wrong and he loves me. And so we wrestle it out. And that's the spirit we have to have on this. Because what we do agree about is the Catholic faith. We can both stand and say the Nicene Creed together. We, below, we both believe in the Trinity. We both believe in the satisfactory atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. We both believe in his death and his resurrection, the fact that he is seated at the right hand of the Father and that he is coming again. Sure, we have theological differences. That's okay. That's a, a familial debate we can have, a good one and an important one. But at the same time, we agree on the faith. We are of one mind there on these essentials, if you will, of the Christian faith. And this is why with the Jehovah's Witnesses, I can't share that because we don't agree on the Catholic faith. We don't agree on the most fundamental. So Paul is, the plea that he's making is brothers, don't do this. Sisters, don't do this. Don't find your identity in other anything other than the one Jesus Christ. Be one in identity, one in the faith, and then one in judgment. And you're going to see this throughout the book because now he's going to go on and talk about all kinds of judgment issues. Should you marry your stepmother? <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, should you get drunk at the Lord's Supper? We should all pretty much be on one mind about this. Should you eat meat sacrificed to idols? Ooh, that's going to be a touchy one. It's going to be a dicey one. How do we think about it? But here's what we should do, brothers. We should all be of one mind that we love each other and I will sacrifice my own freedoms for my weaker brother. We should all be on one mind about that. That should not be, that's not a point of contention. So we're going to see. We're of one judgment. We all hold the same priorities together. Now, why? Why, Paul? Paul would say, because Christ is one. Christ is one. You weren't baptized into Paul. You weren't baptized into Peter. You weren't baptized into Apollos. We all baptized, but we baptized you into Christ, and Christ is not divided. He is one. He was crucified for you, and therefore it levels the playing field, and we are all one in him. So, sorry, Jeremy, my mic not sticking. So the problem, division. The posture, pleading. And the plea, unity. Perfect joining together. So once again, even though I praise you for the unity that we have as a church, 
It's a good reminder to us today, light a fire under us to say, hey, we need to be passionate about this within the church. And just as people prayed for 50 years for the overturning of Roe, and of course, as we said, the battle continues, but people prayed for that. Even thinking, I don't even think it's possible. They prayed for it. When's the last time you prayed for unity? Real, deep, perfect joining unity within the body of Christ. Because there are some pretty deep fissures that run through the body. And you're feeling it even culturally right now. As America, as the American culture kind of gets tumultuous, you're feeling the evangelical culture getting very tumultuous. We gotta pray. We gotta pray for the church. We gotta pray for this kind of unity. If Jesus is praying for it as he goes to the cross, if Paul is down on his knees pleading, like in this apostolic posture of begging, we ought to be praying for it. We ought to care about it and make it our issue as well that we care about here at Affirmation, but for the church at large. So may that be our posture as we go through this book. And we're going to hear Paul relate this to so many issues, and that'll be in the weeks to come. Let's pray before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church. We know that you love your church for all its foibles and all its flaws. Even as Paul can say such wonderful things about a deformed church. We know that you loved us before Paul. You loved us with our spotted and wrinkled gown. You loved us in our filthiness. You sought us out, bestowed your grace upon us. Oh, Father, give us a passion for your church. Make us those who seek unity with our brothers and sisters, who seek it in humility Seek it because we desire the witness of that unity to be what Jesus prayed for, namely that by our unity and our love for one another, the world may know that you sent your Son into the world. Oh, Heavenly Father, make it a passion upon our hearts, and we pray that you would protect it here at Affirmation and through us bring it even to the broader evangelical church. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.